Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me as always is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Uh, Today, we are beginning our new series where we explore the numerous films that followed in the wake of George Lucas's epic space adventure, Star Wars. Now, if you have not already checked out our first series, Get Me Another Batman, I highly recommend doing so. We had a great time discussing the films that came out in the wake of Tim Burton's Batman. That said, we are very excited to explore the cycle of movies that followed Star Wars. And Rob, I think it's safe to say that we'll have an even broader array of films for this series. It's funny because we will have a broader array. Some even go more into science fantasy than science fiction. And also we have non-U.S. major studio films, which means that we're going to be having some fun, including right here today. Yes, yes, we will talk about today. Uh, But before we get started, I want to reiterate one thing about this series is that just because a film came in the wake of another doesn't mean it's of lesser quality. Uh, Some of the movies we'll talk about on this show are, are terrific ones, and a few even kicked off cinematic trends of their own. But nevertheless, they might not have been made if for the success of film, the film that came before. In this case, Star Wars. Luke Skywalker was just a farm boy until he received a mysterious message from a princess. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. She's beautiful. Star Wars, starring Mark Hamill. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. Aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? Harrison Ford. Boring conversation anyway. Whoa, we're I think we took a wrong turn. Carrie Fisher. Good luck. Alec Guinness. You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. 20th Century Fox presents the most extraordinary motion picture of all time, Star Wars. Here's where the fun begins. No legendary adventure of the past could be as exciting as this romance of the future. Here they come. May the Force be with you in Star Wars. Uh, Rob, the word when I think about Star Wars, the word watershed comes to mind. Now, watershed is defined as an event or period marking the turning point in a course of action or state of affairs. And there's a handful of films that can truly be defined as watershed events, and one of those is undoubtedly Star Wars. This is a movie that didn't just start a cycle for five years or a decade. It undoubtedly changed... Uh, blockbuster filmmaking in Hollywood forever and we're uh, still dealing with those repercussions today absolutely and and while you know as you say the the, the influence of Star Wars continues to this present day um, and every few years there seems to be a film that comes out that positions itself as the next Star Wars our podcast is going to focus on those projects that came out in the initial wave of Star Wars influence so roughly from about 1977 to around 1987. Uh, And it's funny because it may seem strange today, but there was a period in the late 80s where Star Wars was relatively dormant. Uh, The original trilogy had been released, the Kenner toy line had run its course, um, the the Marvel comic series had ended, and there was a brief time where Star Wars seemed like it was done. And then in the 90s, you started to see things ramp up again. There was the Timothy Zahn novels, the Dark Horse comics. Eventually, you had the trilogies re-released for its 20th anniversary. And uh, and then eventually the prequels at the end of that decade. So the 90s was kind of a rebuilding decade for Star Wars. But uh, we want to focus on those films that came out uh, sort of in the immediate wake of Star Wars. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, I mean, this is a, a Star Wars as a topic is one that has been talked about tremendously. So I think what can we add is maybe our own personal personal thoughts, our personal anecdotes. Rob, do you have any Star Wars memories from back in the day that you would care to share with the, the listeners at home? Yes, uh, apparently Star Wars was one of the first movies I saw in the theater. I was but a babe, and this would have been on... No, no, this would have been on the release, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was a baby, and uh, I'd been told that when... Darth Vader first appeared on screen, I cried and hid my face. (laughs) And so I guess uh, effective there, uh, filmmaking. But then later I was playing, I had older brothers, they had all the, you know, a bunch of the Mm -hmm. toys, and I therefore had a bunch of the toys that I 
uh, right. was, got to play with uh, from them. And it was just such an integral part of being a little white kid at that time, uh, you know, and, and a boy um, yeah. growing up in that era. It, it's hard for me to separate my childhood from this movie series yeah. completely. It, it's just unfathomable to think of one existing without the other. There were Star Wars toys. I remember just Star Wars as part of the the cultural... Like It was just there. It was like... It was something... I don't remember... Like I'm not old enough to have gone to see the original Star Wars in the movie theater. And so I don't remember sort of like the... Tr- like transitioning to be like oh my god here's this new it was just always part of the landscape um and there's a story where um when i was maybe like three or four uh my parents took me into new york city to have my picture taken on santa's lap at macy's Uh, this was a big big deal and because i was well behaved they allowed me to pick out one star wars action figure uh and i picked out a little little droid not r2d2 I picked out R5-D4, and I loved that was my first Star Wars action figure. I still have it today. And uh, there is a picture. I would not let it go. So there's a picture of me on Santa's lap that I tend to put on social media around the holidays. With You could see the little red top of R5-D4 in my, in my tiny little fist. And it was just, it's like, oh, from that point forward, Star Wars was just... It was just there. I remember having the record album, like, that played, you know, this was before the days of VHS, but the record had all, you know, it was basically like the movie without pictures, and I listened to that over and over again. You know, the thing to know about Star Wars is it wasn't a slow burn. It was an instant success. Like, the the world changed overnight. Um, you know, this wasn't something that, oh, hey, this is not like Big Trouble in Little China, which was for a long time was a movie I thought I was the only one who liked. I had no idea. Star Wars, a little history on Star Wars. It was, it was you know, obviously George Lucas had a big hit with American Graffiti, but Star Wars was turned down by most of the other studios, uh, you know, in Hollywood. United Artists, Universal, Paramount, Walt Disney Pictures all turned down Star Wars. It was finally picked up by Alan Ladd Jr. at 20th Century Fox. Um... And the story goes that originally George Lucas wanted to secure the rights to make a Flash Gordon movie, but was unable to do so because they were the rights were held by Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis, who would eventually make a Flash Gordon movie that followed after Star Wars' success, and we will talk about that movie uh, in the weeks to come. Uh, Lucas, unable to get the rights to Flash Gordon, set out to make his own space adventure. Uh, it's worth noting. The character of Flash Gordon was created by writer Alex Raymond for King Feature Syndicate when they were unable to secure the newspaper comic strip rights to Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars. So, time really is a flat circle. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it's it, Star Wars was such a, a massive hit that it kicked off a wave of movies, you know, that... that intended to capitalize on success. And some of them are low-budget independent films. Some of them are, are big-budget studio pictures. Um, and we are going to talk about some international films ranging from, you know, from Japan to Italy uh, to Turkey. And, you know, it, it's like overnight, almost everybody in the cinema world is saying, get me another Star Wars. When you look at Star Wars, because we are not going to tell you anything you don't know about Star Wars, uh, <laughs> you know, most likely. Yeah. But looking at it from the viewpoint of what did Star Wars actually do as a film? Mm-hmm. And then what do we think people took as the lessons for crafting a Star Wars later on, I think is something worth exploring. Uh, clearly, we're doing an entire series on it. Yes. I would say, and I haven't, we haven't watched all of the movies yet, but just having seen uh, some of the first cycle and, and having a little memory of seen, uh, seeing some of these films before, Star Wars has a lot of lore mm-hmm. involved in it, if you look at it. Sure. It has a... A hero at the center who starts as a simple person, as not a hero, right. and almost like a, almost like a Dorothy Gale <laughs> is plucked sure. from from uh, Space Kansas to become yeah. a hero. Um, and you have introduced uh, a lot of different a lot of different characters, a lot of different character names, a lot of different place names. Uh, All of this is part and parcel of Star Wars. Uh, You have exotic locales. You have... Exotic creatures. 
absolutely. And action and model work and mm. things that you've never seen before. Yeah, it's it, what's interesting about Star Wars, though, is that you watch that first movie. And while there is a lot of lore, they, there is, oh, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi talks about the Clone Wars and that sort of thing. But how little of it you really need to understand the story being told in that movie. Yes, I couldn't agree more. It's color for the world, but that story is much more simple, I think, than some of the filmmakers who come after remembered it being. Yes. Yeah, there, there are there are films, and again, even some of the ones we've already watched, we're just starting on this series, uh, where the plots hinge on much more complex mythology in a way that Star Wars, ha while it has that background, it doesn't feel like you need to know. If if you don't if you don't catch the reference to the Clone Wars in in the original Star Wars, um, or you know, it's not it, it's not going to affect your understanding of the of the film itself. Uh, it, and, and I think Star Wars works best when it has a very simple story to tell. Uh, I think one of the reasons why, very recently, The Mandalorian was such a, 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 a wild success as, as it was, was because it kind of boiled that, that first season of The Mandalorian is so simple. And, and it goes down to, you know, and everybody loved Baby Yoda, sure. Uh, but like... It was a very, very simple story. I think Star Wars works best when it has that simplicity, uh, which is not a lesson other things are going to learn. It has, while it does have a fairly large cast, um, both of, of core characters and uh, secondary and then even beyond, you don't... It doles out those characters very methodically. Yeah. Uh, and in, in drips and drabs so that you can have a handle on it. You don't get in the first 10 minutes Princess Leia and C-3PO and R2 and Luke and Han and Chewie and Obi-Wan. You get Leia, Vader, and the droids. And you right. get time to live with them in that world before you move on and it, it goes. And it has such wonderful character moments that give you handles for these characters. Um, one of them that I personally enjoy the most, uh, and this is a little later into the film, is uh, C-3PO when uh, he is uh, being uh, purchased by Uncle Owen mm -hmm. from the Jawas, <laughs> and he's just talking and talking, and Uncle Owen tells C-3PO, shut up. <laughs> C-3PO's response, it's such a great character moment, he is so talkative, he has to say, "Oh, shutting up now, sir." <laughs> uh, that is that is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a. I mean, my God, it's a movie replete with wonderful character moments. Um, you know, every time I, you know, you look at the interaction when they're on the Falcon journeying to what they think will be Alderaan. Uh, you know, I mean, there's just so many good, you know, between between Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford and Alec Guinness and Peter Mayhew in a in a giant you know the giant Chewbacca costume uh there's just it, it's again it's it's the simplicity the character is stuff is great and but it's interesting to me that it, it's it's the tropes of you know cute and funny robots and bars full of aliens and dog fights in space these would often be the things that that other filmmakers copied but would miss that kind of the the, the simplicity of story and and the the depth of character that that Star Wars has. It's funny. I was thinking about it. You could tell this same story without any of the sci-fi traffics. It could be a story about knights and a farm boy and a princess and a rogue and a rescue from a dark castle. Uh, and you could basically tell the same story without any of the without any of the space stuff. Um, but it, it's so funny that the space stuff is what other filmmakers keyed in on. And often to they forget the relatability of Star Wars. As fantastic as it is, Luke Skywalker starts out as a character who's worried that his uncle's going to be mad at him for losing a droid. Yeah. Other, other things will attempt to have small moments, but they often just feel small. They are actually not relatable. But essentially, oh, you're worried that you're... You know, the uncle who raised you. So essentially, your dad. You're worried your dad's going to be mad because you messed up. 
Yeah. You really can't get more human than that. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I think that is, um, I mean, that's 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 a great point, and and I think it's that simplicity of Star Wars that that will kind of keep it coming back to as we talk about some of these other other uh, movies and series that that um, you know borrow the trappings, but don't always succeed in um, you know in in getting the the the, the real feel of it. Um, Star Wars came along at a time and it kind of filled a void in cinema. The 70s were an amazing time for American cinema, but I think there was a period where there had been a lack of this kind of escapist entertainment. And, you know, first with Jaws, and then Star Wars are kind of the one-two punch that kind of, you know, sort of uh, changed cinema. And, and you know, there's people who would argue it changed too much. Um, you know, that, that the influence of Star Wars is too pervasive. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, that, that hole was there that sort of needed to be filled. Um, so Star Wars comes out in May of 1977 and is, is just an overnight sensation. Um, and immediately you can see that there's, it's like, well, we need to, we need to follow in that vein. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that another science fiction movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, came out in uh, late that year, I think in November of 77. And it was sort of the one-two punch of Close Encounter of Star Wars and then Close Encounters showing that big budget science fiction was financially viable at the box office, which it really hadn't been for the, the previous decade. Uh, one of the first works to try and capitalize on the success of Star Wars was something called Battlestar Galactica. The ABC Sunday Night Movie presents the most spectacular space adventure ever filmed. Transport yourself in time. Star system far beyond our own galaxy. Core systems transferring control to probe craft. Launch when ready. Battlestar Galactica, a saga of a star world. Flying. For a thousand years, a race of alien machines has been bent on destruction of the human race. They hate us with every fiber of their existence. And now their evil plans may become reality. It's dangerous around here. Why does people want to hurt us? What do we do to them? It's not what we did to them. It's what they fear we could do. Join the last remnants of the human race in their quest for a new world. Created by Glenn Larson, produced by Universal Television, and broadcast on ABC, Battlestar Galactic was in originally intended to be a series of TV movies, but the network soon commissioned a weekly series. Uh, the pilot was released both theatrically, uh, was, was released theatrically both overseas and domestically uh, before it aired on television. Glenn Larson, the creator, also created Knight Rider, he created Magnum P.I., Quincy M.E., B.J. and the Bear, uh, The Fall Guy, as well as another series we'll talk about in a later episode, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. Battlestar Galactica tells the story of the human survivors of 12 worlds, known as the 12 Colonies, which are destroyed at the conclusion of a centuries-long war with a robotic race called the Cylons. Uh, a fleet of ships led by the massive Battlestar Galactica flee from the Cylons and journey across the galaxy in search of a long-lost 13th colony which may hold their salvation, a colony known as Earth. Battlestar Galactica premiered on September 17, 1978 and was initially a ratings smash, uh, even if the East Coast broadcast was interrupted by the, the news broadcast of the signing of the Camp David Accords. Uh, and like Star Wars, there was an array of Battlestar Galactica merchandise, uh, including a toy line. You could get one of those those cool the the flight jackets that the Colonial Warriors had, which frankly I would wear now. Uh, and and Battlestar Galactica was a, was a was a massive hit. You know, it starred Lauren Green as Adama. Uh, he was the commander of the Galactica. Richard Hatch played his son, uh, Starfighter pilot Apollo. Dirk Benedict played the roguish Lieutenant Starbuck. Uh, the supporting cast include Herbert Jefferson Jr., Terry Carter, Jane Seymour, Noah Hathaway as the young Boxy. Hathaway would go on to store, star as a Treyu in The NeverEnding Story, one of the most traumatic movies for kids who grew up in the 80s. Uh, and the incredible John Colicos played Baltar, who betrayed the 12 colonies to the Cylons and served as the series' primary antagonist. There's a young Rick Springfield. I was going to bring up young Rick Springfield, yes. Yes, indeed. He was he was uh, he was Apollo's younger brother, Zach, who um, 
who is 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 in the pilot. And I'll tell you, you know, a lot of the names from from Battlestar Galactica have a kind of mythological context. Apollo, there's an uh, Athena, uh, but since there's no constellation Zach, you can probably guess what happens to Zach fairly early. You know, I I, I, re- I hadn't watched uh, the the pilot movie for Galactica in a while, and I, I rewatched it, and I gotta say. It's really good. It holds up really well. Um, the special effects were done by John Dykstra, who had supervised the special effects for Star Wars. Concept design was done by Ralph McQuarrie, who had done the design work for Star Wars. The music was composed by Stu Phillips, and it has a great kind of, I'll be honest, Star Wars-esque score. Um, but at the same time, it's not. it doesn't feel like it's just a Star Wars knockoff. There is, there's, there's its own mythology that it creates. Yes, the story for Battlestar Galactica is not trying to take the Star Wars story and just rework it. It is 100% its own thing. You can feel it in the influences. If if Star Wars was mining kind of more of the Buck Rogers mm-hmm. and Flash Gordon and the, the old sci-fi serials, uh, that excitement... Uh, Battlestar Galactica feels like it's mining 50s and 60s science fiction novels, uh, American science fiction novels of the time. And I don't know, I know Lucas wrote Star Wars, but he was the director, and obviously the the look and feel of that movie is is, uh, big. And I I just, you can feel the difference between a primarily director-led property in Star Wars Mm -hmm. and a primarily writer-led uh, property here in Battlestar Galactica sure. because Star Wars is big and mythic and it really is good and evil and human nature, right? It's not that it's not emotional, but it is very broadly universal. Sure. Uh, whereas Battlestar feels much more, while it also has that human emotion, it feels much more like a show about ideas. Uh, yeah. And I think nowadays you would... Uh, you would definitely use the, uh, the the current trope of Battlestar is about trauma, <laughs> and Star Wars yeah. is, is is more about joy. Yes, and 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 and, and trauma. Uh, well, we'll come back to that because I think it, the 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 problems with Battlestar Galactica, in in particular its original nineteen seventies iteration, is that when it comes down to it, American television didn't have wasn't wasn't sort of narratively ready for the kind of serialized storytelling that Battlestar Galactica on a conceptual level needed to be. So it it it's it's sort of the the issues that Galactica runs into are often brought on by the limitations of television at that time. Uh you know, you have this great 2 hour 2 plus hour pilot movie where you you start out with the 12 colonies being you know, obliterated, and you know the the survivors. You know, gather in what ships they can, and they there's one one battle star left that can can protect them. And it is it, there's amazing stuff in in that first hour. The second hour takes place on a casino planet, uh, and and it's that switch to like, oh, you you have um you know you're 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 now at the casino planet, and I'm like, there's a lot of trauma that needs to be processed, and there's not the space to really process it uh, in the way you would have in modern television. And, uh, and Battlestar Galactica, again, was a, a strong enough concept. It was remade in the early 21st century, uh, in 2003, I believe. And um, they leaned, you know, in sort of a post-9-11 era, they kind of, they leaned into the the processing of trauma in a way that is, uh, you know, allows for a sort of deeper and more emotional exploration of the concept. Um but yeah, but you know the, the the 70s version, the original version, is still fun, and a lot of the the stuff. I think the special effects hold up incredibly well. I think you know it's got a great score, it's got great performances. Yes, and a theme I think that we're going to see for a lot of these, uh, and we saw it in the last series as well, uh, is the the score. And oh yeah. This is not. It's not a complete John Williams clone score. It's not that, but it is clearly influenced by. The types of instrumentation, the uh, epic scope, the hearkening back to a certain kind of old classic uh, Hollywood score is definitely here with Battlestar. Uh, and I, I, the main theme's fantastic. Oh, yeah. But I, I think there is no better advertisement or no better argument is a better way to say it for how important music is. 
to filmed any kind of filmed entertainment that when anyone is trying to follow in the footsteps or capitalize on the success of something i really you have a very very high percentage of the score of that original movie really really being a touchstone for what you're going to do when you when you go to yeah, I, I, absolutely. Um, it's worth mentioning 20th Century Fox actually sued Universal for copyright infringement, claiming that they had plagiarized Star Wars, and then Universal promptly countersued them, saying, uh, you know, no, you didn't, you know, no, we didn't, and Star Wars borrows things that it didn't invent. And and let's say it flat out, uh, Battlestar Galactica is not a Star Wars ripoff. It certainly uses a lot of the tropes. But, you know, the, uh, the tropes that it uses, like, you know, uh, robots and laser guns, you know, are not necessarily things that Star Wars invented. It's like you can't, just because something uses dwarves and elves doesn't make it a Lord of the Rings knockoff. Um, so it, it, Battlestar, I think, was, was definitely trying to ride the wave of Star Wars success. But it's not, it's not a ripoff in sort of the, in the, in the, in the way we, we think of that that term, it it's just kind of it's it comes in the wake of, um, you know it's I I love the design for Battlestar Galactica. I think that that the designers for that show are are incredible. I think the Cylons are awesome. Uh, the Vipers are super cool. The sort of Egyptian theme Viper helmets mm-hmm. are super cool. Um, and the show like elements of the show are clearly des- intended to evoke ancient civilizations. Uh, particularly the the Egyptians and the Greeks, and that's all part of uh, I think you when we talked about earlier the chariots of the gods yeah. uh, kind of feeling for this, which is another great reflection of how this movie, I'm mean, well the TV movie sure. uh, takes certain elements from Star Wars, but really goes in a completely different direction. Yeah. Uh, the opening title crawl for Star Wars is something that is going people took notice of i'll just say yes. that and you're yes. going to see many many versions of oh when we start a story we should we should have a bunch of direct address to the audience setting the table and it, it can go haywire but here they have that voiceover narration but it is not giving you an exposition dump at all it's really very trippy uh almost college dorm room-esque talk about how aliens may have come to Earth and influenced our situation and life is out there. Um, It's uh, so radically different from uh, what you saw in Star Wars. There are those who believe that life here began out there, far across the universe, with tribes of humans who may have been the forefathers of the Egyptians or the Toltecs, or the Mayans. Some believe that there may yet be brothers of man who even now fight to survive somewhere beyond the heavens. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, life, life, out th- life here began out there. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, it, there's a lot of really interesting, it's, it's, uh, Battlestar Galactica is a really full concept that that doesn't necessarily get a chance to to kind of fully mine um, what it could be, you know, what was was possible. Uh, and it's again one of the, you know, we people deride remakes uh, often because they say, well, you know, why not do something original? Well, yeah, but sometimes you find Battlestar Galactica is kind of an ideal property or was an ideal property to remake because you had this great concept that had so much potential, which largely went unrealized. Uh, The series was unfortunately canceled after one season because while the initial a uh, couple of episodes were rating success. Uh, you know, the, the series ended up getting moved around a bit. And a very similar problem to what we discussed in the last series with the Flash uh, TV show. It, it over time, the ratings bled away and the, 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 the show itself was so expensive to produce that it had to be a grand slam in order to, to sort of justify that cost. And so it gets canceled at the end of, of one season. Uh, very sadly, although a letter rating campaign to ABC succeeded in getting it back after a fashion. Um, and what they did was in an attempt to, to sort of 
cut the budget as much as possible, they kind of brought back a version of the show uh, called Galactica 1980, where the Galactica, you know, after being out in space for, for you know, decades, finds Earth. And, well, if we set it on Earth, we can use a lot more regular practical locations and costumes, and we won't uh, have, it won't be, uh, you know, quite as expensive as... Uh, as as you know, as the the series was originally produced. Unfortunately, uh, Galactica nineteen eighty is not good. I, I like I think Battlestar Galactica holds up well, but Galactica nineteen eighty, oh boy, it doesn't. Galactica is actually a really good sort of movie, you know, or movie series that comes in the wake of Star Wars because it it doesn't copy, it doesn't try to copy, it uses the tropes but tells its own story. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's you know, it then was in in two thousand three, it was brought back. Uh, by Ronald D. Moore and David Icke, and and that's got to be one of the most successful uh, reboots in TV history. Yeah, I would think so. And it is, I, I think in part, as you'd said, it, it was harder in the late 70s uh, to execute probably what they wanted to. Battlestar Galactica is such an existential show. Oh my god. Uh, and obviously, there there are moments of 70s TV-dom, uh, like, as you say, the Casino Planet, which, by the way... I would want to go to the casino except for the dark side to it. Yes. But uh, the games look fun. Well, yeah. Uh, but uh, it's so existential. Like, uh, I'd written down, uh, looking back is contagious. Decay and corruption go hand in hand with defeatism and lack of action. Like, Ooh. that is not a line that you could imagine anyone uttering in the film Star Wars. Uh, I wrote down the line, and again, you, you you go you start out with sort of interstellar apocalypse, and I wrote down uh, that by you get to the casino planet, and Starbuck decides he wants to manage an alien singing group, and he actually says the words "big money," and I'm like, dude, what good is money? The world is gone. Like the the only things that have value are the things that can keep you alive. And by the way, those multi-eyed and multi-mouthed singers are, oh. are super creepy. They're like something out of Caligula. It's very upsetting. Yeah, nightmare fuel for sure. Uh, that design is, uh, I, I, you know, big ups. Yeah, and uh, I also want to mention at the at, at the end of the the pilot movie, you know, they they uh, they do escape from the Cylons and they actually blow up another world on their way out. Like Carillon, the 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 Casio planet. Uh, now, granted, the, the 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 natives there were spoiler. They were eating people, and they were using the Casino planet to sort of lure humans there to be eaten. But like, I was like, that whole planet gets wiped out. It's like this this show is just it's it's my goodness. Yeah. Well, there's always uh you know you'll get there what with return of the jedi uh, the old kevin smith thing yes. uh, there were construction workers on that death star uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh i guess everyone glosses over uh, a certain amount to get the uh, exciting action that we all crave uh yes indeed that is uh, that is always the case um you know it's so it's um it's it's a terrific show. I, I think you know it's the sort of thing where I'm like it it's worth going back and revisiting. It's it's readily available on streaming, and um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And you know, and it's a fun apocalyptic show, which sounds like a contradiction and kind of is, but somehow Battlestar Galactica makes it work. And um, you know, it's 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 something uh, you know it's worth checking out. Um, that was kind of one of the first show like shows movies that out of the gate kind of followed in the wake of star wars um one of the other first uh actually comes to us from japan and that is a movie called message from space from a captive planet two million light years away came a desperate plea for help message from space of extinction, the leader of the persecuted Jalutians sends his beautiful granddaughter to find the eight legendary brave adventurers who alone can stop the annihilation. Do you know where Emerald is? 
You know where Emerald Elite is? What are you doing? No! I'm a human being from the planet Earth! Never before has the screen erupted with more spectacle, more excitement. Uh, came out in 1978. It was produced by the Toei Company, which was the studio behind such series as Cayman Rider and Super Sentai, also known as Power Rangers. Uh, it was actually released April 28, 1978 in Japan, which was actually two months before Star Wars got there. But clearly the filmmakers had seen Star Wars was out for, you know, but Star Wars took about a year to, to come from its U.S. release to Japan. So the filmmakers were clearly um, familiar with it. Um, you know, it's just funny to think of today. Everything opens sort of day and date globally. But Star Wars had a limited release in the U.S. at first and then rolled out over the summer of 1977. It didn't reach Japan until uh, 1978. And while Star Wars would become a massive hit in Japan, uh, it was not the first exposure to sort of the space opera genre. The animated series Space Battleship Yamato known in the U.S. as Star Blazers, uh, aired on Japanese television in 1974, and a feature film version hit cinemas in August 77, becoming Japan's highest-grossing domestic film of all time to that point. And I was a big Star Blazers fan as a kid. That was a show, that was one of the first, that was like the first animated show that I ever saw that had serialized storytelling, and it influenced me greatly. So with Space Battleship Yamato in the rear view, Star Wars on the horizon, it seemed like there was every opportunity for a live-action space opera in the Japanese market, and Message from Space tries to fill that void. Yes, and clearly the Star Wars influence is there, because this movie is in English. Yeah. And with with uh, a fair number of, uh, you know, there's some American actors. There's some American actors. Um... And so it, it seems like this was definitely aimed at not just the Japanese market, but the international market in, in the wake of Star Wars for, for that and a million other reasons, which we're going to talk about. Yes. And it was released in the United States by United Artists in October of 1978. So it did, uh, it did have an American release. Uh, and it was also worth mentioning, it was the most, it had a budget of around $6 million, and it was the most expensive Japanese film made up until that point. So they put money into it, you know. And some of the models, I, I can see the the there are there is there are models that they made that look pretty darn good. Uh, you will see far worse in the, you know, in in, in lower budget things. Sure. Um, but uh, I just want to right off the top, I do not advocate anyone to use drugs. No. However, no. If you already use drugs. <laughs> You will probably want to be on them when you see this movie because I think it will make you very happy. Oh my god! I mean, I, I, uh... <laughs> Rob, can we can we sum up message from space for for those people who might not be familiar with it? Can we can we come up with a a, a summary yes. of that? Can we just to try and explain what this movie is? Yeah, and and I think we might need to tag team this one a little bit. Oh, uh, so. You, you open up, again, you know, Star Wars opening crawl. Well, this you get a full-on uh, big voiceover yes. uh, explaining things. And you are dropped onto the planet Jalusia. Yes. Where, and you are given the history. Uh, and the planet Jalusia has been conquered by the Gavanas. The Gavanas Empire. Uh, yeah. Keto, ruler of Jalusia is now uh, going to send out eight Liabe seeds. He throws them into space, launches they, them into space. They look like walnuts. Space walnuts. Space walnuts. And these seeds, these space Rob, walnuts. Rob, they're space Liabe walnuts. <laughs> and there's eight of them. And they're going to find eight heroes who will come and help the Jalusians. Emma Rolita, <laughs> Kido's granddaughter, is sent to follow the Liabe seeds. To get the heroes. And Uroko is sent with her. He volunteers to go, which is a key, actual key story point, although you won't realize it until later. Although I'm spoiling it for you now. Uh, anyway, Uroko volunteers to go. And so this is the, the basic setup, is yeah. that Jalusia has been conquered 
by the Gavanas, who are led by the bad guy, Roxea. Roxea the mother. 23rd or something like that. He's the, like, yeah. you know. All, well, let's just say this. All of the Gavanas have this kind of, or supposedly have like metal skin. Um, but what they look like is the, the Wicked Witch of the West's soldiers from uh, from the, the Wizard of Oz, you know, as if they were, you know, samurai. You know, if, if the Wicked Witch of the West employed samurai, that is what the Gavanas Empire uh, soldiers would look like. Yeah, and, and Roxea's mother kind of is looks like a silver witch. I, I thought yeah. uh, a little... A little more like witchy poo. I thought this was more like Sid and Marty Croft's Star Wars uh, uh, in, in, a, in a fashion. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and again, a lot of... Here's the thing about it. A lot of it feels very like almost a live-action anime. And, and a lot of the... Uh, so the witch reminded me of the witch from... Uh, King Beast Go Lion, which in the U.S. was known as Voltron. So there's that 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 sort of the the witch mother as advisor, you know, was something we would see, and I guess is a, a common trope. But after that initial setup, I it sounds well, okay. You you said some names. It's maybe that's a little complex, but hey, conquered world, space seeds that are going to go find some heroes, and you have to go and bring them back, and you're going to have a big battle. Uh, that's not that complex. Oh, no. Well, that's not the that's not the movie. <laughs> uh, essentially, this is a very episodic kind of string of pearl structure. But really, what this is is the ultimate and then story. Yes, this is a movie where I felt like okay, so they go after the Liabe seeds, and then we see some people who are hot dogging in space. Uh, some new people. And then we're on a space a Pan Am plane where we meet the princess, I mean the heiress <laughs> to a fortune. And yes. then we cut to the military. Yes. And not not a military, the military. It's always the military. You never know what branch it is. It's just the military and the general. And so you, you hop around from place to place really with... I, uh, it, it's very difficult to keep track of because it doesn't feel like there is a through line between them, even though we know, okay, we're seeing people who are going to find a Liabe seed, but man, oh man, it's just very hard to keep track of in your head. Oh, and one by one, they each find the, the they find, each are finding Liabe seeds in odd places. Uh, the, the, the general, the general who is in mourning for his robot. Babo one. When I tell you Vic Morrow bing, brings gravitas to this role, oh my god! You know, I mean, it's it's. You'd think he was he was mourning his lost love. Uh, he apparently does what is uh, you know against the rules. So he he launches the the robot's remains into space with a rocket and uh, is there. Then resigns from the military and he goes drinking to only to find a Liabi seed in his in his liquor oh and by the way he's instantly replaced that first robot with a second robot beba 2 yes Beba-2. and uh and the 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 robot costumes are it, it feels like it's just someone in a, a a dark body stocking with like some plastic stuff uh kind of yeah. like glued on or shoved over their body and the the voice is very it's very cute uh it's almost like they they wanted to smash R2D2 and C3PO into the same into one. uh bad robot costume. Yeah. And yeah, Vic Morrow, I I felt like he's definitely not in the same movie as everyone else. It feels like no. he's No, he's not. He's acting in like Killing of a Chinese Bookie or something yeah. like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's Message from Space. Yeah. yeah. Vic Morrow does he absolutely feels like he- yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. And it's just, a, it, the whole thing is, I mean, you know, it, it's, I mean, God, I mean, it's so bizarre. I can't not say, I mean, it. Th- there's a movie that Rob and I are both a big fan of called Dangerous Men. Uh, and which is just, it's, it's, it's a movie that was made uh, in... Well, they started making it in the late 70s and they finished it in the early aughts. And it's as, it's as, um, it, you know, it's as, con- you know, comprehensive as as you could imagine with that and it's it just kind of goes from one thing to another uh in a way that sort of defies all narrative logic uh message from space is the science fiction dangerous men yes and i feel i swear 
And just to, to talk about one of the elements that I that just tickled me pink is that it did feel at one point that they weren't just taking elements from 1977's biggest U.S. release, Star Wars, but from the U.S.'s second biggest release, Smokey and the Bandit. Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, yes. Because the Hot Rodders, which are known as Rough Riders, um, the Hot Rodders are being chased by, by a, a, a space cop who is basically Space Smokey. He's wearing a motorcycle helmet, like one of our cop motors, <laughs> like a Chips motorcycle helmet. Yeah. And has like the 70s cop the, porn the, stash as well. Yeah. And, and the reflective glasses. He's got the reflective sunglasses in space, Rob. In space. Yeah. Um, and and he, he comes in a couple times, but then as so many characters do in this film, is introduced with without much ceremony and then disappears forever. Uh, the, the amount of characters they burn uh, who oh you think God. are are going to be important and then it's just, nope. On that note, Rob, let's talk about, let's talk about the call to adventure and specifically <laughs> the refusal of the call. Because it is often the case that in these movies, what happens is, you know, the hero gets... You know, sort of tapped on the shoulder to kind of help with the great cause and is initially hesitant. You know, Luke, uh, he can't go with Obi-Wan. He could take him as far as Anchorhead, but he can't go all the way, you know, uh, to, to, to fight against the, the, the Empire. You know, he's got to go home and do his chores. And then usually something happens that sort of makes that no longer an option and, and the hero, um, you know, then, then answers the call. Rob, this, this movie has the most... The, ballsiest refusal of the call ever the rough riders and their their other friend who all have gotten liabe seeds and refuse the refuse to help the jalusians i want to say twice at least and they even th- they throw away the liabe seeds but they keep coming back to they them literally and keep st- and they hearing st- back yeah and glowing uh, in case yes. you didn't, in case they didn't get it the first time, we're a magic seed. We're glowing. So these guys then say, "Oh no, no, no! We will help you." And what they wind up doing is selling them out. And what happens is that eventually the the prince. There's two space princesses. There's the princess from from the planet Jalusia, and then there's kind of the heiress who is also a kind of space princess. So it, it doubles down on its space princesses. Um, but it. The space princess, space princess number one, uh, is basically sold to this old crone who wants to, and I quote, so you could be the bride of my son. And I mean, I, I literally exclaimed out loud to the point where my wife came out and was like, what, what's wrong? And I was just like, I, I don't know what's happening now. And it's, you know, it's, um, and not only that, you know, so it's it's just the the son is this sort of lizard man hybrid mutant person, and as quickly as that plot is introduced, it is almost immediately dispatched, like it's over. It's like I, I don't know what's happening. And the reason the Rough Riders uh, sell sell them out for the money like that is because they have a debt that they need to pay. So this is a hundred percent. Oh, oh, Han Solo is kind of a, a, a rapscallion. He has this uh, debt he needs to pay, so he's... And then he doesn't care about the cause, and he goes away, but then he comes back. But the thing is, Han Solo just walks away from a fight. Right. He, does, he, he doesn't sell him out to a, the Empire. He doesn't, yeah, get, he doesn't is, call up Darth Vader and be like, dude, <laughs> here's where the rebel base is. Yeah. It is... Uh, so bonkers um and everything in this movie is so bonkers there's another aspect to it because that the old woman who wants to get the 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 princess to be uh the the bride for her son gets captured by roxaya and he scans her mind and in scanning her mind he gets memories of uh, her memories of earth and then he decides that he wants to build his palace on Earth and needs to conquer it. So if they hadn't involved the old lady, they never would have. The second half of the movie has Roxaya. Basically, the, the planet Jalusia has engines built into it so it can move through space like some kind of giant 
Death Star or something. And it moves to Earth. And, uh, and and so you have it approaching Earth, and then it's it's going to destroy Earth. And it's now the, the idea of a rogue planet, uh, you know, sort of coming into Earth's orbit. Uh, that is a, a plot that goes back to the original Flash Gordon series, the original Flash Gordon comic strip series, and even a a, a, a novel from the twenties called When Worlds Collide, which was made into a a, a a pretty good science fiction film in the nineteen fifties by George Powell. Uh, so that that's kind of in that tradition, but it, it's essentially Earth gets dragged into it because of of the the the, the actions of the heroes. And uh, but hey, I guess it's okay because they're like the, the the walnuts come back to them. It's true. This and looking at other elements that this film believes made Star Wars a success and what they need to do to copy that success. Um, if you apparently if you are in at the controls of a spaceship and in a cockpit yeah. you just need to woohoo all yeah. the time kind as of regardless of what's happening just woohoo a lot oh my god um, you you need to have a uh you need to eventually in the final act you need to fly a spaceship through a very tiny area to exploit a very, very, very tiny weakness in an impenetrable uh, fortress. Yes, indeed. And I want to talk about that for a minute because I, I will. One thing about this movie that is a little ahead of its time is that it's not just an open trench like in Star Wars. They have to fly into the 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 interior of of the 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 alien planet fortress. And it's actually kind of a precursor to the uh, the sea, the Return of the Jedi, um, the Return of the Jedi chase, where they they have to fly all the way into the Death Star to knock out the main reactor um, instead of just you know a port on the surface. So in that sense, I guess Message from Space was ahead of its time. I guess. I'd say that this is another example of the snake eating its own tail, except this snake is bug-eyed, waving a knife, <laughs> screaming at me to help him with the toilet paper. I, so I, you know, everything is just so inexplicable with this thing. It's fantastic. Oh my God. I, it's just, oh, I mean, there, there's, oh, there's a point where the, the villain is going to destroy Earth and Earth says, well, no, if you destroy us, then you can't build your, your, your pals on it. And he says, well, just to show you I'm serious, I'll destroy the moon. And he does it. He destroys the moon. And there's apparently no, you know, deleterious effects on Earth. Because, you know, I know enough of, I don't, I'm not a scientist, but I know enough that, you know, the moon, if it were just destroyed, would probably wreak havoc on, you know, the tides at least. Oh. Oh, right. Uh, I, I chalk it up to the lob, the Liabe seeds. Uh, the lobby, what, what, uh, I, what I will say is this movie is also ahead of its time. There is one thing from Star Wars it does not copy, which later became a very cliched target of the original Star Wars, which is the ending and the medal ceremony. Right. At one point, Beba wants a purple heart. He's like, I want a medal. I'd get a purple heart. And General Garuda says, you can save your medals. There is more beauty in space. So they're already taking the time to slam the medal ceremony in Star Wars, which is really a ballsy move for this movie, which is so clearly trying to be Star Wars in every way possible. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's, I, 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 I found it very funny. I, I can't, you know, Vic Morrow in this movie, God bless him, he is just, he is so, I mean, like, as you say, it's like he's in a John Cassavetes film and it is just this whole other thing. And I, he's, it's, it's just amazing. He's also given a costume for the, the, the last act where he, uh, he goes as the representative of Earth and he's given this frilly red, what looks like a pirate costume. And, and God bless him, he wore it, but he's carrying the whole time this giant hat. Which clearly he's just like, no way, man! I'm not putting on that hat. I'll just carry it. <laughs> Which I love that that's where the foot went down because he was had no problem being dressed like a space pimp for the bulk of the movie. <laughs> uh, 
He's in this <laughs> long trench coat with a big fur collar. It's extremely 70s. With, and with hat, I think, a lot of the time. Uh, and Baba 2's presence certainly doesn't help that either. Uh, can we talk about the fact that, that second billing in this movie goes to Sonny Chiba and he barely is in it? I know. I was uh, a little disappointed by that. I was excited for Sonny Chiba, martial arts legend. And he shows up about three quarters of the way through the movie as the rightful ruler of the Galvanus Empire. Uh, the Galvanus Empire. And he kind of walks around in a... In a uh, uh, a suit of armor for a while. He eventually has a duel with the with Roxea the Emperor, um, and uh, and that's it. It's 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 really like it, it feels like he should have gotten the end Sunny Chiba credit rather than second billing. It is it is just bizarre. Um, Got to sell those tickets, and that that's indicative of just the weird pacing and flow of this whole thing because he's what I think the seventh hero that the Liabe seats yeah. find. Yes. Uh, the Liabe seeds make the, our regular heroes crash land on this planet. And they find this guy uh, who, by the way, does not have metal skin. It's never talked yeah, about. Yeah, he's the only one uh, who doesn't. Even though he is... Yeah. and uh, But this is, what, maybe a half hour of the movie is left? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, and you, you introduce this major character without, again, with almost no fanfare. And then you're just off and then you kind of don't use him. Which is uh, just kind of the mo of this left and right. It it is it is super weird. Now it is worth mentioning that this movie takes a loose inspiration from a, a novel called Nanzo Satomi Hakenden uh, or Eight Dog Chronicles, and it is a hundred and six volume tale that was written and published over twenty eight years from eighteen fourteen to eighteen forty two, and it is a significant landmark in Japanese literature, and it has been numerous, you know, adapted numerous times throughout the years. Uh, I have to imagine this is a very loose adaptation of that novel, um, and it, it did eventually. It spawned a twenty seven episode television series called Message from Space: Galactic Wars, which doesn't seem to be available anywhere that I can find. Um, it, it's listen. We both love really strange movies and really odd stuff. And if you're someone who wants to watch a very kind of WTF movie, uh, this is definitely it. If you're looking for something like, hey, my kid liked Star Wars, and maybe is something else I can show him in that vein, this is probably not the movie to go with. Not that it has anything objectionable. It's just super, super weird. Absolutely. And I just, I, I have been trying to answer the question of why I like this type of film for a very, very long time. You know, over the years, the answer has changed because what I think I've keyed in on are two things for me personally. If these sound amenable to you, maybe you would like the movie. Uh, number one, in the traditional studio system in the United States, things really o over time have gotten more and more and more on the rails. Sure. Not, I'm not saying that you can't find original stuff that's truly original. And, and I don't even mean you could, I, I could think you could do something truly original with existing IP. That's not what I'm talking sure. about. I'm just talking about, oh, do you have this beat and then that beat and this has to be on page 60, that kind of right. thing. Uh, this movie does not do any of that. And so it is constantly a surprise. I, I do like to be surprised by things. Yes. And then additionally, it is so, because it is so outside the, the, the norm in that way, I, I really feel like I am just dro uh, being dropped into someone's fever dream. Yeah. And I, there's just certain things where I, you just feel, I don't know what I know about the, the, the filmmaker, but I know something about that filmmaker. I like, I, I just, it, it feels like so personal and I also enjoy that. It's worth mentioning that the director, Kinji Fukasaku, uh, had an incredible career that spanned like 40 years, ranging from movies like the Yakuza epic Battles Without honor or humanity all the way to the cult favorite battle royale in 2000 like th this is and this was kind of midway through this you know sort of epic career so he was not i mean an unskilled filmmaker uh there's amazing stuff but this movie is bonkers in the best way possible in the best way but if you want to watch if you if this sounds like it's for you uh it is readily available on paramount plus um it, it, it you can find it there and it's worth 
I mean, if this if this sounds appealing to you, that it is, it's find it. It won't disappoint. Um, you know, message from space. It, it it's not it's not boring. That's for sure. <laughs> And I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening. I gotta say, I think we have some really interesting and fun and weird movies to explore in the weeks to come. So we hope you'll continue to tune in. Next week, we'll discuss several lower-budget efforts to capitalize on the success of Star Wars, including a movie called Star Crash, featuring Carolyn Monroe, David Hasselhoff, and Christopher Plummer. Did you ever think you'd see those three in a movie together? As well as a number of Italian sci-fi films. In particular, we'll focus on one called The Humanoid, but we'll kind of discuss the the, the phenomenon that was Italian Star Wars knockoffs because there was a lot of them. Uh, as well as the very, very loose 1979 adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Shape of Things to Come. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed listening to our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another.